Genesis 2, 18 through 25 is where we'll be this morning. I invite you to stand with me as I read. I'm reading from the NIV. Genesis 2, 18 through 25 says, The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. You may be seated. Our Father and God, like each and every Sunday, we ask for your help that we may know you and love you and worship you, and especially in this pivotal foundational text, Lord, may we see the goodness of it, the goodness of your creation, the goodness of your creation of the woman, and may we praise you just as Adam rejoiced. Ultimately, may we praise you for the grace in Jesus Christ, our helper. We pray that for us who are here in the room, for any who are watching, for those who are in children's church, Lord. And everywhere, may your name be praised. Amen. Well, as has already been mentioned, it is Super Bowl Sunday, and I can see that by the inordinate amount of red in the room this morning. So just by way of hand, feel free to raise your hand, how many of you are rooting for the Chiefs today? You'll notice a good majority of hands raised. That's not surprising. Now I want to ask why. It may seem like an obvious question. But why? Why is there so much more red in this room than green? The color of the eagles who they're playing. And you'd say, well, that's obvious, Aaron, because we're in Kansas City. So I'd ask again, Why? Why does geography matter? Why is it that there just so happens to be so many Kansas City Chiefs fans in this room? Let me give you an answer. Cultural pressure. (laughs) The answer is not that all of us woke up one day and said, you know, I really like Jamal Charles. I really like Len Dawson. I really like these players, so I'm going to choose to be a Kansas City. No, we were birthed or, or raised or moved into an area where, by and large, we are fans of the Kansas City Chiefs. And that is cultural pressure. That's societal pressure. Societal pressure or cultural pressure can be a good or bad or neutral thing. It can be neutral. It might influence what team you enjoy. Or it can be good. It might uh, spur you on to do good and noble things because that's what the culture accepts. Or culture might push you towards something that's totally unbiblical and contrary to Scripture. And that is what we're going to talk about today as we talk about Genesis 2 and the creation of woman. Because there is nowhere in Scripture where you will find more cultural pressure that is directly opposed to Scripture and the 
Bible that in the um, realm of male and female and marriage and sexuality and gender. It was exactly at these Genesis 2 passages that talk about the creation of male and female and what they are for, at this juncture, you will find no more cultural pressure that will push on you and force you to make a choice whether you're going to go with what the world is teaching or whether you're going to stick with what the Bible says. It is at these verses, at passages like Genesis 2, where you will have to make a conscious choice. Will I follow Scripture and what God has said, or will I listen to the world around me. This is especially true for you who are younger, you who are kids who are going to be raised in our culture. You will hear a contrary message to what you're going to hear this morning. You'll hear a contrary message everywhere. And you'll have to make a choice. The world thinks very differently about what it means to be male and female and what that purpose is than what we read here in Genesis 2. So, to give us some foundation, I want to ask the question this morning that Genesis 2, 18-25 answers. And that is, why and how did God create the woman? Why and how did God create the woman? I want to argue with you today that he did this. He created female, and God created male and female for a reason, for a purpose. There's design in this, and it's good. That there's significance in being male and female. It's not meaningless that these uh, designations of male and female are are not just social constructs. They're not just psychological um, constructs, but they are reality that is significant, that is birthed, and that is God-given and ordained in us, and that there is reason and significance in being male and female. So I want to ask this morning, why and how did God create the woman? Why did he create Eve? And we'll find our answer in verses 18 through 25. The first reason, the reason, is there's a simple problem that needs to be solved. And that problem is found in verses 18 through 20, and the problem is that man is not good without woman. Man is not good without woman. And some of you will say, well, that's obvious. But let's see why here in verses 18 through 20. Because in this context here, something shocking happens. As we've been going through creation, what has God been saying about his creation all the way up until now? It's good. It's good. It's very good. And last week we saw that God created man and he gave man everything he needed except one thing. And now, for the first time, God looks upon his creation and says, oh, something isn't quite right. There was something incomplete and not good in the Garden of Eden. Man had a relationship with God. He had a vertical relationship. Man had maybe even a relationship with animals, a downward relationship with animals beneath him. But there was no counterpart for him, no one by his side, nobody who was his equal. Look at verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. And the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. 
It was not good for man to be alone. In study after study, it has been shown that men benefit greatly from marriage, in fact, more so than women. That, um, this is a little bit uh, careless the way I'm going to say it. Women can kind of do fine on their own, but men really need to be married, is basically what the studies say. Men who are married live longer than their single counterparts, have better overall health, make more money, have better sex lives, and behave better overall than single men. Marriage is good for men. So you could say, oh yeah, obviously it is not good for men to be alone, but actually what it's talking about here is not just about marriage. When God said it's not good for man to be alone, he's not saying it's not good for man to be single. His point is bigger than that. We know it is fine and good for people to be single. Jesus himself, a single man. Paul, a single man. Paul commends singleness and celibacy as good statuses, as a good way to live. So when God says it's not good for man to be alone, he's not just talking about marriage. He's saying it's not good this individual is isolated. It is not good for this man to be without community, to be without, without relationship. If he is created in the image of God, this man must have somebody who is like him to be in community with. God himself, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is in relationship. And if man is to be in the image of God, he must also have a relationship with someone who is like him. So God will make a suitable helper for the man. And those two words are very, very important. A suitable helper. First helper, what does that word mean? You may be tempted when you read this to look at helper and think, oh, God made Adam an assistant or a servant, a helper. That man has all his desires and all his dreams and aspirations, and this woman is to come along and just help him to fulfill all his desires and dreams. And that's what that's saying, right? No. That is not what that word helper means. It is not assistant or servant. The word helper in scripture most often is used to describe God. It's a word used for divine intervention very often. Like God was Israel's helper. It's a word for someone who came and provided what was lacking. Israel was in trouble, so God came and provided where Israel was lacking. Israel was in need, and God helped Israel. It's a word for somebody who comes in with strength and support and gives what is needed. Uh, deliverer is not a bad term. It might be too strong to say savior, but it's not totally out of line. The condition is not good. Man needs help. So God provides a helper. Question is, help to do what? What has man been tasked to do? as we talked about last week, to work and keep the garden, to work and keep creation, which is a way of saying to serve and to obey and to worship God. This was the task man had before him. You are to serve and to worship God and take care of his creation. And in order to do that, you cannot do it alone. You cannot worship God by yourself, so I'm going to make a helper for you. 
and fill in what is lacking so that together you may serve and worship God. That is the purpose of the creation of the woman. It is not just for man. The woman is created for God, that he may be worshipped by humanity. Ultimately, the woman was not created for man, but created for God, so that both she and man would worship their creator together. Which tells us something really important right off the start. It should be an obvious point. You can't worship God by yourself. It's not possible. There's no such thing as a person who says, I just worship God all by myself. No, you don't, because you're disobeying God. Not even in the perfection of Eden could man worship God by himself. God saw, fundamentally, people need to be in relationship together in order to serve God well. So you cannot worship God on your own. You must be in relationship, community with others who are like you so that you may together worship God. It is hardwired in us, that need for others. And also gives us a glimpse as to how the church is to operate. Men and women together. A church of all men would be a disaster. A church of all women would be a disaster. Both men and women are needed together, both engaged, serving and working together, if God is to be glorified. And if that is to happen, they have to be compatible in some way. So there gets to the, that second important word there, a helper who is suitable. I think suitable is how the NIV translates it. The, the word in Hebrew literally means according to the opposite. It's a counterpart. Someone who is like, but different. You might think of polar opposites. Similar, but there is a sharp distinction, a, a yin and a yang, if you will. I think the best word for it is compliment. Two halves to a whole. This is exceedingly important. It's basic, but this basic truth is under attack because the basic truth is God made men and women who, to have like nature, both humans, both image bearers, but distinct from one another. They are not interchangeable. You cannot go back and forth between one and the other. They have equal value, they have a like nature, but they are distinct in their creation. They have a distinct purpose. They play complementary roles, both contributing to the other. Men and women are different, and we see that here right in Genesis 2. They are counterparts. Because they're different, their difference is meaningful, not meaningless. And we know men and women are different. I'm going to use a stupid illustration. I think I've used it before, but I think it carries truth in it. If you're at home, husband and wife, and you're in bed, and it's 2 a.m., and you hear a strange noise, who goes and investigates? There is one correct answer to this. I don't care if the wife is an MMA fighter... The correct answer is the man goes and investigates. Why? Because he has a distinct role as responsible for the health and well-being of the home and as protector. That's not just cultural norm. I don't care what you say. That is divine order. Men and women need each other. And God's going to show Adam his need for the woman because what he's going to do is he's going to parade all the animals before him. And I think this is the birth of science. Right, this is the foundation of all scientific endeavor. God brings creation before Adam and says, what are you going to call this? 
How are you going to classify all this? And Adam is the first scientist, and he gives names. Uh, one commentator called this a parade of misfits. As different animals brought before Adam, saying, oh, how about this, how about this? And Adam gives them names. Dog, you'll be called a porcupine. You'll be a manatee. You'll be a naked mole rat. Whatever weird animal you can think of there, brought before Adam. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the literary classic Go Dog Go. There's kind of a funny gag running through the whole book where there's a female dog and a male dog and the female dog wears a hat and goes before the dog and says, do you like my hat? And the dog's a jerk and he says, no. If you've read the book, you know what I'm talking about. It's really weird. Do you like my hat? And the male dog says, no, I don't like that hat. Then finally at the end, she has this crazy hat and the male dog says, I love that hat. That's a great party hat. Right? And the, there's the, I guess the tension of the story is resolved. But she keeps kind of going for him. What about this? What about this? No, no, no. And that's what's happening here in Genesis 2. It's kind of a series of animals going for Adam. Will this work? Will this work? Nope. 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 Nothing is suitable. There is no counterpart. So God must fix that problem. That's what he does in verses 21 and 22. Woman is created out of man. First we see that man is not good without woman, so woman is created out of man. God takes the initiative and creates a suitable helper for him. Verse 21. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib, and he, the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. Notice how this happens. God is a good anesthesiologist. Places the man in a deep sleep. I suppose to prevent him from the pain of having his side ripped out. But I think there's something more significant going on as well. It shows that man is not active in this. Man isn't responsible for creating the woman. He was asleep the whole time. He had nothing to do with it. This is God's work. God is the one who fashioned and made the woman, which is another way of saying woman is God's gift. God's work in creating her. And of course we know she's created out of the side of Adam, out of a rib, or a Hebrew word really just means side, and part of his side, to come alongside him. Matthew Henry the Puritan famously adopted an old rabbinic saying, and he wrote that woman was not made out of his head to top him, not out of his feet to be trampled on by him, but out of his side to be equal with him under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. The Bible actually uses kind of a funny word when it says that God made the woman. The word is built, constructed. It's a, it's a very physical term. God constructed, built the woman. I think that's important. It's a physical word, because his creation is physical. The woman was to play a distinct spiritual role in helping Adam 
And she has a distinct physical creation to match that. And when God made the woman, he didn't just make an exact physical counterpart, but just with different psychology or different spirituality. No, God created and built and fashioned and formed, constructed a physical counterpart. This is physical. And what I'm getting at here is that gender and sex is not just a psychological or social construct. It is something that God built from the very beginning. It is physical. God gave a distinct spiritual role, so he gave a distinct physical form. And this biological sex is not something that is um, assigned or given by us or determined by us, but it's something that is God-ordained, God-given. Some will say that we aren't male or female innately, and some today will say we can choose which we want to be, male or female. But what we see here in Genesis 2 is that, no, God ordained and built a distinct creation. Men and women are fundamentally different in their physiology. A month ago, I mentioned in another sermon, there's a man by the name of Roger Bannister, who in 1954 was the first human ever to run the four-minute mile. I made the point there that in all of human history, in all of recorded history, nobody had ever run the four-minute mile until 1954, and Roger Bannister did it. Since then, 1,700 people have run the four-minute mile. Now here's a quiz for you. Of those 1,700, how many women have run a four-minute mile? How many of those are women? The answer is zero. None. Is that just cultural influence? Or could it be that men and women are biologically and physiologically distinct? And they're able to do different things. And since 1954, no woman has run a four-minute mile. No man has given birth. (laughs) Men and women have all sorts of traits that are distinct and different. There is overlap in some things because we're both made in the image of God. We're both human. But there's also difference. We're physiologically distinct. That isn't something that just happens later in life. It's not a superiority-inferiority thing. It's just a distinction built different. Catholic professor Abigail Favalli wrote in her book called The Genesis of Gender, and she wrote detailing how the biology of male and female are different. I'm going to quote a long quote to you, so here's a science lesson. And if you're bored by that, you can fall asleep for just a few seconds. But I'm going to read a long quote about how male and female are different from the beginning. She writes, Human bodies are teleologically organized according to our distinct role in reproducing the species. The structure of our bodies is arranged to produce either large sex cells or small sex cells. Those sex cells are called gametes. Large gametes are ova, and small gametes are sperm. A physiology arranged to produce ova is female, and a physiology arranged to produce sperm is male. This twofold distinction between large and small gametes is stable and universal, not only throughout the human species, but also among all plant and animal species that reproduce sexually. There is no such thing as a third gamete or a spectrum of possible gametes. When the gametes combine, they can create a new member of the species. 
The sex binary, then, is the necessary foundation for the continued transmission of human existence. If it's just a construct, we're in trouble. Rather than arbitrarily assigned at birth, a baby's sex is determined at conception through the SRY gene or its absence. The gene is the master switch of sexual differentiation. If triggered, the SRY gene initiates a process of sexual development toward the production of male gametes. Without successful SRY activation, the gonads of a developing baby become ovaries, which are structured to produce female gametes. In short, at conception, we are hardwired male or female. There are two sexes, two genders. You may make all sorts of modifications that are surface level. You can cut parts off and add parts on. You can deepen voices, inject hormones, add or take away hair. But all of those changes are surface level and do not change the underlying biological reality that everyone has created, male or female. And at this point, somebody will say, well, what about intersex people? And I'd say, yeah, there are a small percentage of people who have genetic and chromosomal disorders. There is an abnormality in the development of their male and female characteristics. That is true. That does not mean they're not male or female. All of us have been impacted by the fall, and all of us are biologically imperfect as males or females. You will not find a biologically perfect male or female in the room. And even in the more abnormal disorders where something goes awry in the development of male or female, those abnormal developments have not produced a third gender or a third sex. There are always abnormalities in the parameters of the basic binary of male and female. I just want to be clear. From the beginning, God created two. Whatever you want to call it, sex, gender, there are two of them. And your biological and psychological being or self is linked who you are emotionally and spiritually and psychologically is linked to who you are biologically and everybody is created, male or female. There are some who don't love how they were created and struggle with being a male or struggle with being a female. and That's a hard thing to struggle with. What I want you to see from Genesis 2 is that your gender, your sex is not an accident. It's not a mistake. It's God-ordained. God-given, and it is a beautiful, wonderful gift of creation that God made you a man or a woman. And here, very specifically, the woman is a gift, not just for man, but to God and all creation. An awesome creation to be celebrated and cherished, not to be resented or changed. That's exactly what Adam does. He sees the woman, he celebrates, and he rejoices. We see that in verses 23 through 25, as man beholds the woman, and we have the first marriage in Scripture. After woman is created out of man, man and woman are united. And this first marriage we'll see 
points to the ultimate marriage. Man and woman are united in verse 23. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. The man sees the woman, and what does he do? He writes a love song. If you want to know why pop music is filled with love songs, here's why. Because the first recorded words of a human being in Scripture are a love song. He says, this is now, or at last, finally. I've looked at everything else in creation, nothing else will do. Finally, this is the one. The man says, she shall be called woman, for she is taken out of man. The Hebrew word for man is ish. The Hebrew word for woman is isha, a derivative of man, and kind of plays on the fact that she was created out of man. Ish and isha. And the funny thing about that, actually, is all up until this point, the word ish has not been used. The word for man has not been used. It's been Adam the whole time. It's almost as if it takes the creation of woman for the man to know who he is. That they interpret one another. And now that we have male and female, we have ish and isha, man and woman. They can only properly be called man and woman once they have each other, once there's distinction they know who they are. And he says something interesting. He says, she is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He is, I think, rejoicing in the origin of woman, but I think he's doing something more there. I think this is covenantal language. I think Adam is speaking a covenant here. You are united to me, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Why do I think that? Well, turn to Second Samuel 5. If you want to, turn to 2 Samuel 5, and here David is anointed as king over Israel. And there's kind of this anointing ceremony, and the tribes of Israel come before David, and they place him or install him as king. In 2 Samuel 5, the first couple of verses says, All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, now, in the NIV, it says, we are your flesh and blood. But in other translations, which I think are better at this point, say, we are your flesh and bone. That's what the Hebrew says. We are your flesh and bone. All the tribes come before David and say this, and then says a couple verses later, when all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. So what's going on here? They're making a covenant together. And how do they enact a covenant? How do they speak about it? They say, you're my flesh and bone. We're the same. We're united together. We are tied together because and flesh and blood is not a bad uh, translation because that's how we say, you're my flesh and blood. We're united. And I think that's exactly what Adam is saying to Eve. You are my flesh and bone. We are united. We belong together. It's a commitment, a covenant of marriage that he's making. We are one flesh. Now he uses covenantal language. You belong to me and I belong to you. And that's what marriage is. That, that covenant of union and united together. We belong to one another. We're committed to one another. And this is the most important human relationship we're going to have because we are committed to one another. 
It's what we're saying when we get married. A husband and wife together saying, you belong to me and I belong to you and we are covenanted and we will be each other's highest priority, humanly speaking, outside of God himself. You are the relationship. You are the person I am most committed to, more so than parents, more so than kids. The best way to have a healthy home and happy kids is to be committed to your spouse in that covenant. Because the man and woman are united, they're one flesh, they're intertwined, they belong together. They give themselves to one another. So 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says even that your bodies belong to one another in your whole physical self. All that you are, you belong to each other. Meaning you are to give to each other. Everything I have is yours. All of my life intertwined with yours. And this is why divorce is so, so painful. It's been said that divorce is as painful, if not more painful, than death. and brings more grief and more sorrow. Because in divorce, what has been united together is ripped apart. And there is no such thing as a clean separation. It is always messy. Always painful. That's why adultery and cheating are so damaging. Because it is an attack on the union. This would be my counsel to any husband and wife who are considering divorce. Whether it be now or years from now, my counsel to you, it will not bring you joy. It will hurt you in ways you never thought possible. However unhappy you are now, it can get worse. I'm not saying that those who are unsafe in marriage should stay in an unsafe marriage. I am saying those who are unhappy in marriage will not find joy in divorce. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 19, so they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. If I could give advice to those who are dating and looking to be married, consider your decision with great prayer and wait. Who you marry will be the biggest decision of your life outside of your faith and commitment to the Lord. It will have the greatest impact on your life because you are becoming intertwined and united with someone. And that will affect all of you, from your finances, to the way you raise your kids, to your work, to your spiritual health. All of that is intertwined. Who you marry can be a terribly destructive choice. It also can be, if done rightly, the greatest gift you will ever experience in life. And the greatest joy, you will know outside of the joy of the Lord, is the joy of knowing somebody who's united to you. It can be a great joy because God has made it. And he has created it to be good. That's why God gives sexual desire. Because God loves marriage. In fact, it is his institution. Look at verse 24. 
Marriage is God's gift to give. Verse 24 says, That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Notice the way that's worded. That is why. That's explanatory, isn't it? Here's why. It's speaking to a universal principle. This is why this happens. You all know this fundamental reality of life. This union of one man and one woman. That fundamental principle, here's the explanation for it, is because God has established this universal pattern, this universal principle, this universal truth. God has ordained it the way it is. It is rooted in the creation of male and female, this union of a man and a woman in marriage. And what I'm saying is marriage is something God created, not invented by men and women. It is a God-given thing, which means he defines it, and he declares it what it is. It is his. It belongs to him. And he defines it, and we see here in Genesis 2, he defines it as a man and a woman united together. Is what Scripture records, what the church has always believed. This is the God-given definition of marriage, and any other kind of union is not marriage. No matter what a culture says, no matter what a people says, no matter what a state or government or another church says, the only thing that is marriage is a marriage of one man and one woman together. Every kind of union is something different. So somebody might ask, well, we know God hates divorce. So what do you do if you have two gay men married together and let's just say one of them converts to Christianity and rejects their homosexual lifestyle. What are they to do? Do they stay married because God hates divorce? Or do they separate? And, and it's a really hard pastoral situation. People walk through this. But here's what my answer would be. As hard as that is, they separate because they were never married. That's not marriage. Two men together, two women together. You might have all sorts of physical and relational intimacy, but it's just not marriage. Because God defines marriage. He has defined it here for us and shown us what it is. Marriage is a covenantal union between a man and a woman. It is a good thing, it is a wonderful thing. You can see its beauty and its goodness because they stand naked and not ashamed. All throughout Scripture, when you hear this word naked or see it, it's just about always bad. It's never a good thing. Usually associated with being naked and poor, or in a bad condition, or guilty, or embarrassed, a result of judgment. Here, though, in Genesis 2, they are naked and it is good. They are vulnerable. There is no barrier between them. They are not ashamed because there is no imperfection. Completely vulnerable, completely safe. And this is what the covenant does. Is it makes them safe and vulnerable before one another. That's the beauty of marriage. Marriage provides that covenant of commitment and safety and security so that you can be exposed and not ashamed. That is the problem with hookup culture and the sexual culture of our day. It pushes you into all the vulnerability and none of the security. Exposure before, before all sorts of people without any of the commitment and security and structure. And we wonder why people are suffering. 
the hookup culture is destructive. Because it destroys this foundation of marriage, of vulnerability, intimacy, and security and safety. Why is marriage so important? Why do we as Christians care about marriage so much? I would put forth to you that marriage and the understanding of male and female is the greatest social justice issue of our day. Marriage, gender, sexuality, these are the most significant, I think, social justice issues of our day. I use it in the best sense possible. There are lots of social justice issues that we as Christians ought to be concerned about. It's not a dirty word. God is a God of justice, and he wants his society to be good. Marriage is a great social justice issue. Sexuality is a great social justice issue for us. But it's not just a social justice issue. Marriage is not just about having a healthy life in society in our day. Marriage points far beyond that. Marriage itself points to an eternal truth about our relationship with God. Consider this. How is Israel referred to all throughout the Old Testament? Particularly Ezekiel 16 other places like it. Israel is God's bride. God defines his relationship with his people as a marriage. And Israel is his bride. And what kind of bride was Israel? Scripture is clear. An adulterous, idolatrous bride. And what is true of Israel is true of all of us. Men have failed in their role to take lead in worship and serving God. Women have failed in their role in helping men to worship and serve God together. And all of us, just like Israel, have been unfaithful partners to God. Even with the woman's help, we have not worshipped and served God as we ought. So what does God do? He sends another helper, a deliverer, a savior. What does that savior do? He restores the marriage and restores our union with God. How does he do it? Jesus Christ, the great deliverer, dies on the cross, takes away our shame and our sin and our guilt and anything that might make us embarrassed before God, Jesus takes that on the cross so that we can stand exposed before God unashamed. Not because of our goodness, but because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ given to us so that we may be a pure and spotless bride wedded once again to our God in union with him. Why is marriage so important to us? Because it is a picture, a glorious picture of our relationship with God and what it is to be a loving God, a spotless bride, wedded together in union forever. I'm not just making that up. That's what scripture says. Ephesians 5. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Paul says, this is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. 
the mystery of the union of marriage points to the greater reality. Paul says, I'm talking about, but this is talking about what marriage is all about is Christ and the church, and your marriage is a display of the gospel of Jesus Christ who lays down his life for his bride just as every man ought to. That's what it means to be a man. To be a leader in the home is a servant who lays down his life for his bride and sacrifices himself for her. And the church, in response, follows Jesus Christ and adores him. That's what it means to be a wife who comes alongside and helps and follows in adoration. And together they are a picture of Christ and his church. That is what your marriage is at its best. It's why it's there. It's why God created this union to show us the kind of love and intimacy that we will have with him in perfection forever. Marriage is a display of God's love and his salvation through Jesus Christ for the church. It's why it's important to us. It's not just a social issue. And it's not something, honestly, I feel the need to go and try and change the world on this. Going off note a little bit. But we fight for truth, whatever we believe, and wherever we are, but I don't think our primary agenda is to convince the world of what male and female is. Our primary agenda is to display the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that comes along with living rightly, living according to Scripture. My primary agenda is not to fight a culture war, my primary agenda as a pastor, as a man, is to make sure where we are, we are displaying the beauty of the gospel. It starts in our marriages. It starts in our homes. And you say, well, what if I've made a mess of my marriage? What if I've been an imperfect husband or an imperfect bride? Spoiler alert, you have been. You have not escaped the fall. We'll get to it. But the good news is, there's a perfect deliverer who makes all of us righteous and spotless by his grace as a gift. And both man and woman were created to display that grace of God. Pray with me. Our Father and God, we thank you for beautiful words. And these are beautiful words in Scripture, the, the foundation, the creation of something wonderfully good. And we know that marriage itself is not ultimate. It's why there is goodness in being married or single, because what is ultimate is displaying the grace and love of God in Jesus Christ and his gospel. And you have given that task to us all, both married and single. We do pray for our marriages, Lord. I pray that they would be healthy displays of the gospel, that we would, in our own marriages, repent where we have failed, rejoice where we have succeeded by God's grace and in all of it. May we point to the one who cleanses us and makes us unashamed, Jesus Christ, our great deliverer. We rejoice in your creation today, Lord, and give you praise. Amen.